I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Sojourner Truth. We go through her birth story, a little bit about her family growing up, some of the different stories of people that enslaved her, a little bit about how she arrived at Christianity, and then we end the episode talking about her advocacy and activism. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Okay, today we are talking Sojourner Truth. I know a tiny little bit about her. I know that she was alive in the 1800s and got to see, and it was an abolitionist, and so I'm sure I'll, I'll learn a lot of things here, but what do we need to know, Garen? What, what, who is Sojourner Truth? All right, per the usual way we like to approach stories of people from history, we're going to jump in at the beginning and discover her story kind of organically by going through it. So you already tipped the hand that she's an abolitionist, but we're just going to work with that. Great. (laughs) So her birth name was not Sojourner Truth. Her birth name was Isabella Bomfrey, and she mostly went by Belle while she was young. Okay. She was born, we don't know the exact year, but around 1800, maybe a couple of years before that. She didn't know the exact year because she was enslaved from birth. She was the daughter of James and Betsy, who were enslaved by Colonel Ardenburg in New York. And then when he passed away, they were enslaved by his son, Charles Ardenburg. Charles enslaved 12 people, and he made all of them, all 12 of them, sleep in a single small cellar below his home. The only light that reached the muddy floors came from a small window pane. So just a difficult and unjust Charles was trash. Mm -hmm. Yep. Isabella's father was usually called by the name Bomfrey, which is a Dutch word for tree, They grew up speaking Dutch, so Isabella's first language was Dutch. She actually didn't learn English until her teenage years. Wow. She had 10 to 12 siblings, but again, it's hard to know the exact number because she was born near the tail end, so many of them were already, had been sold by the Ardenbergs before she even really knew who they were or Mm. had met them. Two of her siblings at age three and five years old were sold while she was an infant, On the day that they were taken, it was snowing outside and an old-fashioned sleigh pulled up and the five-year-old boy was delighted at the sight of the sleigh, but then he was taken and placed inside of it and he became afraid. His three-year-old sister was then locked inside a box on top of the sleigh and he kind of panicked and bolted and ran. He ran inside and hid under his bed, but then obviously without any good places to hide, they found him quickly and they brought him into the site. I mean, imagine I have a a five-year-old, I have a three-year-old, well, he's going to turn three in a a month. And to imagine their feeling and what they're going through to be taken like that. And to imagine the suffering of Isabella's parents, James and Betsy, as their children are taken and sold away. And the cruelty of a system that allowed that and looked the other way and didn't even consider that 
didn't even consider the the suffering that they were imposing is just yeah it's unbelievable and the fact that she remembered for the rest of her life how her parents spent hours mourning together and recalling every tiny memory they could of their stolen children mm-hmm. just to speak their names and just to recount that horror and that tragedy and that it, how and how it marked her life mm. yeah i mean to imagine oh your gosh. parents growing up and and just overlooking and seeing that grief that like the little recounting of just these small details of the first words of, of this or that child that you never got to meet, but that's your brother or sister somewhere out there in the world that and to see their, their grief. My God. And this was happening like all over. This isn't like the only... It so wasn't unusual. Totally typical. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, families were regularly broken up, especially after the transatlantic slave trade ended. Yep. Uh, the price of slaves went way up because there was like a cap on basically on the the number of enslaved people in America. And so then the as the price went up, there was all this new incentive to sell the people that were enslaved. So there was big shift of enslaved people being sold down south to growing plantations down in the south. And oftentimes in that with with that monetary incentive, there was just a regular practice of families being broken up. Children being stripped away, spouses being torn apart. Yeah, you're selling a person to be able to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. So Charles, the slaver who did all this, died when Isabella was nine years old, at which time she and her one brother who remained with her at that point were both sold at auction. Her mother and father received their freedom at that point, not because the Ardenburg family decided to be kind, but because... James Bomfrey, the father, was older and he was no longer at an age when he could work. And in that system, there was this obligation that, like, supposedly, that white people were supposed to take care of the people whom they had enslaved in their old age. But oftentimes, white people shirked that responsibility. And we see them trying to do that here by they set him free and set his wife, Betsy, free. But in order, really, it was in order to avoid that obligation to care for them in their old age. Wow. So then at that auction, at nine years old, Isabella was purchased for $100 by a John Neely of Ulster County, New York. And she could only speak Dutch at the time, and the Neelys could only speak English. So she wasn't able to communicate with this family. And what a strange, disorienting world to enter into. And then they regularly abused her because they would whip her, they would be here because, I mean, she can't understand their orders or what they're commanding her to do. And in their frustration, they took that out on her. They whipped her daily, she says, and once with a bundle of rods so that her skin was scarred for life from there. In those days, she ran towards God, but she didn't really know who God was. She had misconceptions about God. She thought that he could only hear prayers when she was praying out loud and she wasn't allowed to talk really, around the Neely family. So she would steal away at night and go to this quiet place between, a little bank between branches of a stream nearby, and she would pray. And she believed that God heard her, and and there was even, she recounts in her biography, some kind of miraculous-seeming answers to prayer at times. But she didn't really have a developed understanding of, of who God is or access to that, really. So then as she was with the Neelys, one of her prayers 
that she prayed was that God would somehow get her a new place to live. And uh, and for that, that, that God would bring her father to come and see her, visit her. And so she prayed that. And then the next day, her father showed up and was there in answer to that prayer. And she followed him and she asks him to find her a new place to live. She says in her biography, which she she couldn't read or write, so she didn't write it herself, but she dictated her biography. So it's basically an autobiography, but with at the hand of a scribe. Yeah. So she says that when he, her father, was leaving, she followed him to the gate and unburdened her heart to him, inquiring if he could do something to get her a new and better place. In this way, the slaves often assist each other by ascertaining who are kind to their slaves comparatively, and then using their influence to get such and one to hire or buy their friends. And masters, often from policy, as well as from latent humanity, allow those they're about to sell or let to choose their own place if the persons they happen to select for masters are considered safe pay. So you see in that, first, that there was some hope in her that her father maybe could negotiate a better place for her to stay, but also just the way in which the white psychology was at play of this willingness to some latent humanity, some willingness to let the people they enslaved maybe have a say in where they were, but only if it didn't cost something, which isn't real love. Like real love is willing to do what's right or good for another person, even if it costs you something. Sometimes charity or or just kind of like a self-righteous, like wanting to feel good about yourself, substitute for love is a willingness to do what's good for someone as long as it doesn't cost you something. And that's what we see her describe as the common practice. But it did actually work out and turn out that her father was able to find a better place for her. He talked a fisherman into purchasing Isabella from the abusive Neely family. And so this fisherman, Scriver, purchased her for $105. And he was relatively kind and pleasant. She was basically at that point just would run errands outside. And so she had some freedom of movement and was in a, a less abusive situation. But it didn't last for very long. She was with the Scrivers for, I think, 18 months. I don't have it in my notes, but yeah, 18 months. So uh-huh. then her dad, shortly after that, he lost his wife and caretaker, Betsy. She passed away from illness. And I imagine having black women, enslaved women, were expected to have so many children. And it, it just took a toll on her body. I mean, the trauma, the mental trauma of giving birth to children and losing them. I can't imagine just the anguish that the heartbreak, but then also the physical illness from the toil and labor. Mm-hmm. And sleeping in that cellar all it's, those years. Yeah, sleeping in a cellar with no sun. And yeah, so he was old and near blind when she died. And of course, he was full of grief over all he'd been robbed of. I mean, his 12 children, his life, his labor, and now his wife. And he wandered between homes of the Hardenbergs for a time, but they got tired of him. And they ultimately freed two more men that they had enslaved on the condition that they would care for Bomfrey. So they freed people because they didn't want the burden of caring for someone that they'd enslaved. Ultimately, that care too failed. He died alone in his cabin, starving, frozen. It's tragic. Yeah. Like the lack of... Care. Care. 
the lack and of humanity. Yeah, respect for human life. life. Yeah, and and I don't know. It's like you want. There's this human impulse to want to find some kind of silver lining in tragedy, but there's not really a silver lining to find. At least in in his story. I mean, I guess the silver lining is his daughter and what she went on to do. But like in his story, it was just kind of tragedy from beginning to end. Yeah. And that's difficult to process and deal with, but I think it's, it's important to, to recognize how much was taken and lost by hatred and racial for white supremacy and, yeah. and to grieve that. So after a year and a half, then Scriver, the fisherman sold her to a John Dumont and she remained there until New York passed emancipation in 1828. And in Bell's autobiography, she describes Dumont as being reasonably kind. But the reality is that he was actually heinous. Awful. Absolutely, absolutely heinous. Yeah. And what she maybe didn't have like the full perspective to understand was like he was a child molester. He was basically grooming her in a way where he would give her favors and kindness, but then take sexual, like he would rape her as, as a child. She was 13 to 18 years old at the time because we don't know her exact birth year. We don't know her exact age at the time, but she would have been a young adolescent at the time. And he and, was a pedophile. And as he would give her this attention and favors, his wife, Mrs. Dumont, rather than despising her husband for her husband's abusive abominable sin she took her anger out on Isabella and she she was like jealous and cruel towards Isabella so it's just this double cruelty that she was trapped in and, and then she made her white servant girl mm-hmm. abuse Isabella as well so she enlisted her to abuse mm-hmm. Isabella yeah and then in one episode that Isabella recounts in her autobiography the white servant girl Kate was basically polluting, using charcoal, putting charcoal in this pot of potatoes to kind of pollute the potatoes so that they tasted spoiled in order to blame Belle for it so that she would kind of get the flack for doing a bad job cooking the potatoes. And then one of the Dumont's daughters, the, their 10-year-old daughter, saw what was happening and actually told the family what was happening, that, that Kate was doing this. And, and Belle at that point felt kind of vindicated by that. But... But man, to be in so entrapped in a situation where everyone in this in this family, everyone in your life is some form of abusive to you and you're just having to like survive in that and to navigate that. She actually did become pregnant by Dumont and she had a daughter, Diana, by him. But it's just really tragic that that's what any human would have to live through or survive through. But she did survive. After all she'd been through, she even gained a romantic interest in a man named Robert who was enslaved at a nearby nearby farm. Mm-hmm. But, of course, his enslaver refused to allow the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so he would sneak away to check on her. And one day he was discovered and he was beaten by his enslaver. So... Yeah, I mean, and this is not this is not uncommon. This is very common that enslaved people would meet each other, they would fall in love with each other, they would be prevented from having relationships, they would be beaten, 
And of course, when you're looking at enslavers who are raping the women, there's this posturing and oftentimes, I'm sure, jealousy and wanting to punish black women and men for being more than, uh, for stepping outside of their their identity as property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's such like perverse and twisted incentives that the that the white Dumont rapist has as he considers who and whether to marry, to provide a husband for Isabella, which he basically had to sign off on. He did eventually provide a husband for her and a man named Thomas, who was also enslaved by him. But she was actually Thomas's third wife after the first two had been sold off. And so you again just see like the scarring and marks of the cruelty of the system that for for an enslaved man, marriage, what did it really mean? It meant like, for now, we'll let you be with this woman until until we decide to sell her away. And really for the purpose of procreation, not really to see people be in relationships mm-hmm. to thrive and flourish. Mm-hmm. This is all, the bottom line was was profit, gain, greed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and just white supremacy accommodation. So she says of that, and and, and this is one of a couple quotes that I'll read or, or things she talks about that just describe the cruelty of slavery. So she said of the of the dissolution of marriages of enslaved people, quote, such an abominable state of things is silently tolerated, to say the least, by slaveholders. Deny it who may. And what is that religion that sanctions, even by its silence? all that is embraced in this peculiar institution. If there can be anything more diametrically opposed to the religion of Jesus than the working of this soul-killing system, which is as truly sanctioned by the religion of America as are her ministers and churches, we wish to be shown where it can be found. So you see, Isabella, who, who writing at the, at the time of writing her biography, she was a Christian, but just not mincing words as she describes the profound deadness of American Christianity and its tolerance of this institution of slavery. And she talked about just the cruelty and the lies and manipulation. She said, the slaveholders are terrible for promising to give you this or that or such and such a privilege if you will do thus and so. And when the time of fulfillment comes and one claims the promise— they forsooth recollect nothing of the kind, and you are, like as not, taunted with being a liar. So it's, I never told you that. And I'm sure as she's saying this quote, she's recounting the abuse of Mr. Dumont, hmm. who would give her certain favors or promise her certain favors, but then in exchange for raping her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he ultimately even promised her freedom if she would work hard till the end of a certain harvest. And she did, and then he withdrew that, which, I mean, is later in the story, but you just see that example. And she gives another example of the same thing here. She says there was Charles Broadhead's promise to slave Ned that when harvesting was over, he could go and see his wife who lived some 20 or 30 miles off. So Ned worked early and late, and as soon as the harvest was in, he claimed his promised boon. His master said that he had only promised that he would see if he could go, but that now he had seen that he could not go. Mm. But Ned, who still claimed the promise on which he had depended, went on cleaning his shoes. 
His master asked him if he intended to go, and when he replied yes, he took up a sled stick that lay near him and gave him such a blow to the head that he broke his skull, killing him dead on the spot. The poor colored people all felt struck down by the blow, yet it was but one of a long series of bloody and other most effectual blows struck against their liberty and their lives. No official notice was taken of his more than brutal murder. My God. Yeah, the I mean the fact that anyone like that the that the white people overseeing and condoning this system could consider themselves moral in any way. It's I mean it's a shocking case study of human ability to deceive ourselves and to justify ourselves because it's so obviously and in every way such a decrepit immoral system and yet the people who were going through it there was almost this like community self-imposed blindness to an unwillingness to recognize how inhumane it was. Yeah. So as I kind of hinted at a second ago, with less than a year left before the end of slavery in New York, Isabella kind of ran away. She, she technically didn't run. She describes it saying, I did not run off for I thought that wicked, but I walked off believing that to be all right. But she had, She'd had this promise of her freedom, and Mr. Dumont was not going to honor it, but she just claimed it anyways. And so she walked off, and she went to stay with family named the Van Wagoners, who took her in and gave her refuge. But Mr. Dumont came looking for her and found her. He was angry and demanding that she come back with him. She refused to come back, and then he threatened that if she didn't come back, well, he hadn't offered freedom to her daughter, so he was going to take her infant. And he said that as a way to try to exert leverage on her, to force her to come back with him. But then Mr. Van Wagoner said that he abhorred slavery, but would offer to basically buy her freedom for $25 if Mr. Dumont would let her go. And so Dumont agreed. And so she, at that point, truly gained her freedom. For $25? For $25. I mean, in the context, that was a year before slavery was going to end in New York. So it was basically buying a year of her freedom. The normal price of an enslaved person in those days would have been higher than that. Yeah. But then her son, Peter, who, just to like clarify, there, her brother was also named Peter. So we mentioned a Peter earlier in the story, but that was her brother. And she named her son after this brother who was taken at a very young age which she doesn't spell out that that was like a way to honor him, but, but I think that that's a good possibility. Yeah. So she named her son Peter, and, and when he was, I think, five years old, he was taken and sold illegally. Mr. Dumont sold him, and then he was resold illegally to Alabama. New York had passed laws at this point that children couldn't be sold outside the state because there was going to be a gradual phasing out of slavery where, where children, even after emancipation in New York, children didn't immediately gain their freedom. It was like a phased out thing, but they would age out of the system of slavery. But then New York said, well, you can't sell them down into the southern states where they would remain enslaved permanently. And so he was sold illegally to a slaver in Alabama. And then Isabella heard of this and she actually won the first or one of the first legal cases, one of the first successful attempts of a black woman in America to sue a white man. And she was actually successful. She enlisted the help of the Van Wagoners and their network that came behind her. So 
I mean, she probably wouldn't have been able to do it without some of the support because the system was, was so slanted in those days. But she was able to sue and restore, like ultimately the man gave in and brought, brought her son back. When he was returned to her, he had been scarred. And you could see, I mean, even a child, five-year-old child, had permanent scars from the whippings he had received, the abuse that he had received, which is, I mean, I feel like a lot of this episode, I'm just kind of at a loss for words to even convey the sadness that I feel in describing these realities that that were for, for then just commonplace. And all of this where New York, it's happening in New York, we want to paint this picture that there's such a tremendous difference between the North and the South. But Black people were being brutalized, abused, raped, mistreated in New York, in the North as well. And even though there were some more empathetic white people in some parts of the North and the South, by and large... Slavery was the rule of the day. And even as they're emancipating people early, like in 1828 versus the 1860s when Abraham Lincoln's emancipation happens, people are still still being abused. Children are being abused. They're being phased out. I mean, these are human beings we're talking about. And they're being treated like animals. Mm -hmm. Even when Isabella was trying to get her son freed, it was said, you know, all this over a little N-word. You know, this is how a child is referred to. And basically telling her that she should find comfort in taking care of, of her other kids as if this child that came from her mm. womb doesn't have value because she has other children. Yeah. To say, yeah, she said, don't you have enough children to take care of? And, um, like just dismissing the loss of a child. Yeah. Which, I mean, who says that? And then that legacy of this of Isabella seeing her parents having gone through losing 12 children, losing, you know, so many children, and then her inheriting that legacy into the next generation. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh my gosh, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Isabella's husband was freed when emancipation came to New York but then he earned a scant living for a few years, but then ultimately died in a poorhouse. Just not, I mean, and this was a common thing that when slavery ended both in New York and later in America, there was not a just system created for to provide real opportunity for the black people who had gained their freedom. And so Isabella was left providing for her two children on scant wages. She describes her wages were trifling for that time. The wages of a female were a small advance from nothing. Hmm. That's how she describes it. She made do as best as she could with, with, with next to nothing, trying to protect and provide for her kids. She moved to New York, to the city, but Peter, her son, quickly fell in with bad company. He got repeatedly into trouble with the law, all misdemeanors, but started to kind of give this like foreboding uh, feeling for Isabella of like, was it a mistake to move here? But then an opportunity came for Peter to sail and to earn a living as a crew member on a ship. So he took that and Isabella was excited about that. He sailed out and he wrote five letters home to Isabella. She actually only received three of them, but he referenced in the last one that he'd written for before. 
But then after that, she never heard from him again. Never understood what had happened. Like the ship came back, and he wasn't on board it, and there was no account of what had happened to him. Mm. He just disappeared. So I don't know. History hasn't recorded, and we don't know. But I, I would imagine some kind of tragedy befell him. Isabella ended up at a Zion church on Church Street in New York, and she began to make friends and worship alongside one friend who she met there, this older woman whose health soon started to fail. A few months later, Isabella met two of her long-separated siblings. She was reunited with them, Mm -hmm. Sophia and Michael. And she didn't recognize Sophia at first, and she had never actually met Michael Previously, she'd maybe just heard of him. But Michael described that they had another sister, Nancy, who lived in New York and attended Zion Church, the same church, but that she had passed away a few months earlier. Isabella then realized that her friend from the church, who she knew in old age, who that, like this older woman who had passed away, had actually been her long-lost sister, mm. who she, by she, God's grace and providence, she had this opportunity, not even knowing that they were siblings, had this opportunity to meet her and befriend her. And that's the same sister who had been taken in the sleigh mm-hmm. all those years before, and Michael was that same brother. Mm-hmm. Yep, so she reunited with them. I was able to, I mean, the suffering of those torn family connections is not even really fully mended just by being reunited later in life, but it is like a, a kind of grace that she got to meet them. Yeah. And know some of the people who... She should have had, a, had the opportunity to, to love all along. Eventually, she set out east and left New York City behind. She had no friends or community or connections to the east, but she had become a Christian, a Methodist at the Van Wagoners, and she felt like God was calling her to go and to preach true Christianity, which for her meant preaching Christianity that also highlighted abolition yes. and, and like a need for justice and to bring God's love to people meant to truly love them and not just to try to trick them into saying some prayer, but to like actually holistically value people. Imagine that. So she brought that message and she moved east, which was like Long Island from where she was starting, ultimately crossing over to Massachusetts. And she, in that time, took a vow of poverty. She came to view money in a way where, I mean, she just seen so much of its corrupted use that she kind of became hardened towards it and money itself became just almost like a reminder of trauma so she was frustrated with all the trappings of wealth Uh, she wandered through long island and relied on the kindness of strangers to help give her lodging and a roof where needed at one point she was offered a roof but basically i mean it's New York, it's cold. It was probably not a comfortable night, but she was offered a roof and they said the condition was that they would lock the door. And she had been so traumatized by the time that she'd been enslaved that she refused the lodging. She refused to to stay there because of just the anxiety that came from being in a, a locked room. And, and I mean, even as she's goes on from here to do all these incredible things and, and we'll see and we'll talk in, in the rest of this episode about these incredible things that she did. I mean, it's important to remember and honor her humanity of, of what she was enduring and coming through and that she still struggled with that anxiety to the point that she would rather walk outside at night and continue through the night outside than to, to be locked up again inside yeah. of a room. 
One thing that is worth noting here is that she did speak with a Dutch accent, and she goes on from here to have like a speaking ministry. She became a, a popular speaker, actually wrote a really famous speech that was used in abolition and women's rights circles that we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. But she had a Dutch accent, and I think that there's, it's worth pointing that out just as it speaks to how whiteness was almost like the white supremacy that discounted black people as uneducated because they spoke with a black vernacular kind of gave her more room because she had a Dutch accent and and so was not immediately put into that racist stereotype that that was, I think, part of why she was given greater audience and greater attention in her speaking ministry and her speaking opportunities, which is good for her, but it also kind of, uh, as you start to see like, man, all these people from Black history, I mean, so many of the people that we've covered from Black history are people who had the opportunity to travel and live in Europe, who had the opportunity to gain more of an education and that those were really rare things. And it starts to make the point of like how many incredible people didn't get recorded by history because they were never listened to, because they didn't have the opportunity to speak in an accent that white people would listen to. Or approve of. Or approve of. But because of kind of her unique circumstances, she happened to have a European accent, and so she was given greater audience. And yeah, that's no indictment on her, but it's just kind of a point about white supremacy. And and I guess it's a point about today, like our own hearts today, do we dismiss people who, who speak with a different accent than what that we're comfortable with? And if so, we're, we're committing the same folly. Mm. So her relationship in God developed through this time. It started at the beginning, like as we kind of talked about earlier, she had a misconception of who God was, thought he could only hear audible prayers. She also describes how early on she would bargain with God. She, she would say that if he would get her out of her difficulties, she would repay him by being very good. And she intended that goodness as like a way to pay God back. Over time, though, she learned that God was all-powerful, and so she listened to the creation, the account in Genesis, with great curiosity and found it odd that God was working during the day and then retired and had to rest at night. And you can just see her trying to reason through this. And she took the account literally early on, but then over time she came to reason that if God is all-powerful and runs the universe, he can't possibly grow tired or need to rest or else the universe would come unhinged. And she was just really, really drawn to the scriptures, drawn to the Bible, and wanting to understand the truth of it. It says even that she, you know, would be frustrated when when adults would try to read and explain their interpretation, and that she relied, she preferred having children read the Bible to her because they would go on and on reading without explaining any of the meaning. So she could decide for herself what she thought it all meant rather than rely on the interpretations of others, which her faith fueled her abolitionist work and her activism, Mm -hmm. which is very common for many of the anti-racists and abolitionists during that time. Yeah. So in getting into that abolition work, in 1844, she joined the Northampton Association of Education and Industry, in Florence, Massachusetts, and there met William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, who encouraged her to deliver her first anti-slavery speech. But by this time, she had changed her name to Sojourner Truth, 
Um, she changed her name actually when she kind of went on that missionary journey to the east, um, to, through Long Island. So she spoke to dozens, perhaps hundreds of audiences. From 1851 to 53, she worked with Marius Robinson, the editor of the Ohio Anti-Slavery Bugle, and traveled around the state speaking. Then when the Civil War came, she helped recruit black troops to the Union Army and supported the war effort. After the war effort, she spent seven years, tragically unsuccessfully, working to secure land grants and federal government assistance for formerly enslaved people. I think if she had been successful there, man, we would live in a, in a different America. If, if black people had had the opportunity for those 80 years of Jim Crow and kind of like the fictive slavery of the sharecropping system, if they had had the opportunity to actually be using their skill and work and labor to for a, uplift of the black community, it would be a different America. But sadly, that was not successful, but it was a noble effort. And in 1864, she was employed by the National Freedmen's Relief Association, working diligently to improve conditions of African Americans. In October of that same year, she was invited to the White House by President Abraham Lincoln. And in 1865, while working at the Freedmen's Hospital in D.C., she rode streetcars to help force their desegregation. Wow. So just all, all, all different, on all different fronts working to, as an activist. And I love that she just kind of found her place advocating at the intersection of women's rights and abolitionism. Her intersectionality as being black and a woman was just, especially during that time, it's just powerful to step into. She exploited the contradictions found at the, that intersection. So she exposed those contradictions And at the 1851 Women's Rights Convention held in Akron, Ohio, she delivered what is now recognized as one of the most famous abolitionist and women's rights speeches in American history, which has come to be called Ain't I a Woman? I love that speech. And so just to quote some quotes from it, she said, I want to say a few words about this matter. I have as much muscle as any man and can do as much work as any man. I have plowed and reaped and husked and chopped and mowed. And can any man do more than that? I've heard much about the sexes being equal. I can carry as much as any man and can eat as much too if I can get it. I am as strong as any man that is now. As for intellect, all I can say is, if a woman have a pint and a man have a quart, why can't she have her little pint full? You need not to be afraid to give us our rights for fear we will take too much, for we can't take more than our pint will hold. I've heard the Bible and have learned that Eve caused man to sin. Well, if woman upset the world, give her a chance to set it right side up again. Jesus never spurned woman from him. And how came Jesus into the world? Through God, who created him and the woman who bore him. Man, where was your part? (laughs) But the women are coming up. Blessed be God. I love love that speech. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, there's a version of that speech that circulated later and is maybe like the more popular Popular. version that you see now that was actually not probably authentic to what she had said. It was put into a Southern dialect, even the name Ain't I a Woman. She was Dutch as her language of origin and hadn't spent any time in the South, so she probably would not have said Ain't. Exactly. Uh, But that was like a rewriting. I mean, 
I've read the speeches both. They're both short. You can look them both up. And they're substantively the same. But, but right. the, the more popular version was the one that was put in that kind of Southern accent. But this one is the one that was written more contemporary to the speech and is probably what, what she actually said. So historian Martha Jones, she said, when black women like truth spoke of rights, they mixed their ideas with challenges to slavery and to racism. Truth told her own stories, ones that suggested that a woman's movement might take another direction, one that championed the broad interest of all humanity. Mm-hmm. Which I just love that. And, and can so see that in the ways that black people have contributed to America. Like so many of the institutions that are the best aspects of America have come through the tireless work of black people seeking to, I mean, and when you think about it, a lot of white people who have some disadvantage, they will in a very targeted way just try to improve that disadvantage, but it's like self-interest. Right. Uh, because we already have advantages in most aspects of life. So if, here's this one where I don't have an advantage, so let me just target that thing really specifically. But for these black figures in history who, I mean, Sojourner Truth was in many ways at the bottom of the American system. And so then the effort becomes so much more broad. And you can see that in, in their advocacy of the, like, I mean, you see this in like Angela Davis, when we talked about her, like, she did every kind of pursuit of justice. It's not just like one narrow type of pursuing justice in this small way, but it becomes this big, broad effort because if you're at the bottom of the system, then you want to just make the system better. You don't want to just capitalize on one, your one little self-advantage aspect of it, but you want to make the whole system work. And so the advocacy of Black people throughout history in, in particular, but I mean, many, many of whom, like thinking of the stories that we've covered, but, but here just highlighting Sojourner Truth, her advocacy was this broad and beautiful advocacy that hit on multiple fronts, on women's rights, on she advocated against capital punishment and for prison reform, advocated for various forms of like economic justice. You see her in the advocating for land for formerly enslaved people. It was just like a broad pursuit of a better world. Well, her experience kind of yielded itself for her to care for others because when you're at the bottom, like you were saying, you know, and she she carried the weight of generations of her race, the, their experiences. I mean, her parents weeping over their children, her father's poverty, how her father was enslaved and freed from enslavement. And her mother was only freed from enslavement to care for her father because the enslavers didn't want to care for them in their old age beyond them being able to work. I mean, when you are enslaved or when you are oppressed, you're carrying... I I remember this gentleman that I used to work for, he used to say, Katina, we have to save the race. And that is the burden that Black people carry, that we function as a community, even not knowing each other individually, but we function as a community and our advancement is for the people. And it can't be about one of us because one of our experiences is probably going to be the experience of many. And so... Sojourner was taking everything that she'd experienced and the stories and experiences of her siblings that she was reconnected with, the stories of people in the church that she attended and the people that she met along the way. It's just, it's just powerful. Mm. Yeah. 
towards the end of her story and towards the end of her autobiography, she talks about some closure that she found with Dumont, the abuser who we talked about earlier. In late in his life, his fortunes withered and he was he basically lost most of what he had. And he met Sojourner Truth and in that conversation, he basically apologized. I mean, it's not like what I would want from an apology, but but he apologized in a way, and he said that slavery was one of the wickedest things that had ever existed. So he came to a view that, like, I think he saw the wickedness of slavery and hopefully his his participation in it. And I think that that, for, for Isabella and, and how she describes it and highlights it, brought her a lot of closure I think that's like a, a really important step for somebody who's been a victim of such trauma to even just hear that acknowledgement that the trauma in all of its darkness and wickedness was was real and was bad. And Dumont recognized that. And then you can see Sojourner's integrity in that she celebrated that and prayed that the Lord would bless him, Dumont, even after all he'd done to her. Even, even after all the cruelty, she, I think, forgave him. Yeah. And then at the end of her life, she, she passed away in 1883 at a home that she, she was able to buy her own home with proceeds from her autobiography and from some of the work that she did. So she's able to buy her own home and she passed away in 1883. And Frederick Douglass, he eulogized her. He was in D.C. I mean, he said, venerable for age and distinguished for insight into human nature, remarkable for independence and courageous self-assertion, devoted to the welfare of her race, she has been for the last 40 years an object of respect and admiration to social reformers everywhere. So may she receive, even now, through this and through our remembering of the work that she did, the, the love that she had, the struggles that she endured, we just want to honor her. For, for the lasting contribution she's made to make America a better place, a more loving, a more just place. So thank you, Sojourner Truth, for a life well lived. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can support us for $5 a month at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. We'll leave you with this quote from Sojourner Truth herself. God will take care of the poor trampled slave, but where will the slaveholder be when eternity begins?